Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Yeah, I'm just going to, I just, I have a bit of a tradition about moving the furniture around when I get on stage. Just, I like some space to roam, so. How's everybody doing? Yeah, enjoying the service so far? Yeah, wonderful. Well, we're, I'm going to be continuing our series looking at the book of Judges. So if you've got your Bible with you, flip to the book of Judges. It's what, like the sixth book at the start of the Bible, something like that? Six, seven, somewhere around there. Anyone know a song? Genesis, Exodus. Anyone got a song? No, nobody. Wow. Okay, well, we're going to be there. So, um, you know, we started the series looking at some good, some better judges. They, they did some good stuff. They weren't horrendous people. Um, but unfortunately, as we go through the book, we see the judges getting worse and worse and worse. And so today there will be a story of victory. Hooray. But it does come at quite a price and is surrounded by a whole heap of mess and failure as well. What a cheery subject for us to speak about on a Sunday morning. But hopefully there's still a lot in this story that you can take from it and we can apply to our lives. So as I said, we're going to be looking in Judges at the story of a guy called Jephthah. Everybody say Jephthah. 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 It's a bit difficult to say, um, but hopefully by the end of this talk, you'll know how to say it. Um, And we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 10 through to chapter 12. Have you heard the saying, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Anyone familiar with that saying, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Apparently it's a film. I've not seen the film. Sorry. But Jephthah's story is a little bit like this. And throughout, as we go through, we'll be looking and thinking about how we trust God in the midst of everything we go through. So should we start with the good? Just to have a bit of a positivity, you know, to get us going. So... The good bit starts with, unfortunately, Israel going away from the Lord, which isn't good, but we'll get to some good in a second. They've, they've, they found themselves being oppressed after once again walking away from God, and this time they are actually, um, there are multiple tribes of Israel being oppressed for 18 years. So anyone under 18 in the room? No? Everyone upstairs? Okay. Well, just, oh, there you go. There's another 18 there. So you weren't even born in that time period. Isn't that mad? So, let's, let's, let's basically the Israelites go to Jephthah to ask them to lead them in battle against their enemies, against their oppressors, who are called the Ammonites. So, let's read together. We're going to, actually going to be starting reading from Judges 11. And we're going to start at verse 1, and we can read through. So, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now? When you're in trouble, the elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. What's good in this story, I hear you say? Well, initially, Jephthah does agree to help them. We see that. And he generously looks past the pain of how he's been treated in the past. Remember, he's been outcast by his people. And now his people are coming to him saying, oh, actually, would you mind helping us, please? 
He's looked, he's, he's been gracious towards his people. He said, okay, I'll go with you. And then we see some more good in verse 12. It says, then Jephthah sent messages to the Ammonite kings. Remember, the Ammonites are their enemies. Jephthah is now Israel, Israel's ruler. And so he sends a message to the king. And he says, what do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messages to the Ammonite king saying, I'm not going to read everything that he says, but basically he gives a great reasoning proving that it is the Ammonites who are mistaken. That in fact, the Ammonites have no claim over the land of Israel and that they are in the wrong. And then it culminates in verse 27, which says, I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of, the, the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So Jephthah's response is, firstly, it's respectful. He takes it seriously, but he doesn't insult or overreact. His reply is factual and detailed and thorough, which is a good thing. We can take that in mind. His response is also peaceable. He seeks a peaceful solution without a fight. Again, to be commended. And lastly, it is humble. He recognizes that ultimately God is the one who judges what is right. And that's a good lesson for us, isn't it? We should learn to um, respond to accusations using Jephthah's example and try to avoid violence and seek peace. And so we see more good things in Jephthah's life as the Holy Spirit comes on Jephthah and empowers him to lead Israel to victory. And this is true for us in our lives today. In every moment, every responsibility that we have, every duty, every relationship, we need to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this, and you can just reflect on it. Do you trust the Holy Spirit to fill you and give you everything you need Come on, that's good. If you've recently just got a promotion at work, you need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If you've just started leading a small group in church, you need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If you've just become a parent, or you've just started serving in church, or, or maybe you are, um, I don't know, you're just taking on something new, or maybe you're stepping out for Jesus, you need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we would love to pray with you for, for you for this later. And I think that hopefully will encompass most of us, right? Most of us have something going on that we need God's empowerment for. So, we've seen Jephthah's good example to us, okay? He's forgiven those who've hurt him in his past. He's tried to solve the disputes with wisdom and reason. And he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid, however, that's the end of the good. I know we got there quickly, but things now in Jephthah's life go from bad to ugly. Okay, so strap in, everyone put your seatbelt on, and we'll get on through this together. So have you ever said this to God? Have you ever said, God, if you come through for me right now, I will spend the rest of my life following you? Or, God, if you solve this situation right now, I'll do whatever you want to pay you back. Anyone prayed a prayer like that? I think I probably have through the years as well. Well, after God's spirit rests on Jephthah, he go, before he goes into the battle, so yeah, he's, he's, he's said yes to his Israelite friends, um, he's going to be their leader, the Holy Spirit rests on him, and then he goes into battle, right? But before, immediately before he goes into battle, uh, he, he says to God in verse 30 of our passage, 
If you give the Ammonites into my hands, so I, God, if you come through for me, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, I, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So do you, do you see that thing there? God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. You see that? Uh-oh, you might be thinking, that's a dangerous prayer and you would be right. God does win the battle. Hooray. You know, that's the, that's the good stuff that we're celebrating. The Ammonites are defeated. Jephthah returns home. And what comes to meet him? His only daughter. Just imagine what Jephthah must have been feeling in that moment. He's made this promise to God. And now it's his daughter that he sees. Jephthah feels that he can't go back on his promise and so after letting his daughter have, in effect, what's like a two-year, sorry, a two-month gap year, kind of traveling around, being with, her, being with her friends, it seems through the passage that Jephthah goes through with his promise to God and sacrifices her, his daughter to God. Now, this is obviously horrific, and it should make you feel righteously angry. It should make you feel like that isn't right. That's kind of what the, 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 the scriptures are designed, the writer is designing to do for you to feel. That isn't right. That shouldn't be how things should be. I have two main questions for Jephthah. Firstly, why did you make such a dangerous promise? What, was it, what were you thinking about? And then secondly, why did you then go through with it? Surely you could see that wasn't right. Both find their answer in Jephthah's warped view of God. So why did Jephthah make that promise? Well, the nations surrounding Israel had pagan gods. And these nations would believe that God is a bit kind of like for, for buying. In other words, if you wanted the God to do something, you could give a lot of money or you could sacrifice something or you could do something good for God and then this God would come and save you. That's what they believed. You know, if you gave enough money, that, that, that God would then be obligated to then do the thing for you. Do you see what I mean? So it's like almost like a, like a transaction. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. And that's what the nations around Israel believed. And Jephthah had let this pagan view of, of, of what gods were like influence his thinking about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and figured that in order to win that battle against the Ammonites, he needed to buy God's favor by promising a sacrifice. You with me? You see how that works? Let me ask you today. Do you trust God to win the battles you face without having to buy him off? Do you trust him when you're in the middle of it, in the thick of it? Are you, saying, are you tempted to say to him, okay, God, if you do this, then I will do this and try and, like, try and blackmail God into helping you? But then secondly, why did Jephthah go through with it? Again, the pagans that we just talked about, they didn't believe in a God of grace. They believed that, if you got that, that God would take you at your word. And so if Jeph Jephthah thought that if he went back on his promise then God would like strike him down. There was no grace. There was no forgiveness. If Jephthah had, had a better knowledge of God, he would know that child sacrifice was actually detestable to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, which is in the law that God gave Israel, God commands, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, i.e. in the way of the nations around you, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in, their, in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So if God hates this thing, and it's, a God, it's the God of Israel who we know even, even before Jesus was a forgiving God in certain places, 
that God surely would have had grace on Jephthah if he had changed, uh, abandoned his promise. And this serves as a great reminder for us. We might inadvertently compromise the truth about who we know God to be with the world's truth. We might, you know, it's helpful to reflect sometimes, how much am I being influenced by the world around me? And how much am I being influenced by the Bible? Another way to think about it would be, how much time do I spend in the world around me? And how much time do I spend in my Bible? Now, I'm not suggesting that we should do a 12-hour split on, like, world Bible. But it's worth thinking about, isn't it? How much are we letting cultural and, and worldly things influence what we believe about God? The other encouragement that we can take from this passage, this awful story, is the reminder of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says that God doesn't ask for human sacrifices, but rather invites us to be living sacrifices, sacrificing our own desires, dreams, and rights, so we can serve him in a holy and pleasing way, bringing light, goodness, and love into our world. And I just want to just focus on that middle bit, that end of that first line, start of the second line. What does it say? It says, in view of God's mercy. That's another way of saying because of God's mercy. And so it's not in order to earn God's mercy. It's because of God's mercy. In, in, you know, we were just saying, uh, God, if you, do, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. Paul's saying here that we should be living in a way that's saying, God, because of what you've done, I will do this. Whether you do something again or not, I'm still going to live my life as a living sacrifice to you. So we'd all agree, hopefully, that that part of Jephthah's story was pretty bad, right? You with me? But I'm afraid to say we haven't actually got to the ugly part yet. Unbelievable, I know. What a crazy story. After Jephthah returns victorious, so, and then after the whole thing with his daughter, another, challenge, another tribe of Israel challenges him. So his own people challenge him and say, why did you go out and defeat our enemies without involving us? And Jephthah kind of says, well... I did involve you. You just didn't listen. And then it kind of descends into basically a shouting match of racial slurs. And then Jephthah slaughters 42,000 men of Ephraim. Pretty ugly, right? In Jephthah's life, we see good, we see bad, and we see ugly. Themes that we've seen in many of the judges that we've looked at in this series. I would like to just briefly address the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Many of us here today might be able to call up the story of a Christian leader who has done a really good thing, been used by God, and then in some circumstances has made some decisions which have meant that they've fallen away. Maybe they've been involved in a scam or abuse or um, controversy. Especially this year, I don't know if you've been kind of paying attention, but it seems like there's just Christian leader, one after the other, just falling and stuff coming to light. And it's like, it can be so devastating when people that we've put our trust in and believed in fall. It can leave us feeling so like, oh my goodness, I trusted you. And not to mention, it's obviously incredibly painful for all of those who are directly impacted by their failure. But the lesson that we learn from Jephthah's life, and I, and I hope the lesson that God can teach us today, is that firstly, just because God does good things through a person doesn't mean that he then endorses everything that that person does. Does that make sense? 
God can use somebody and do a good thing through them without saying, okay, well, everything else in your life is therefore good as well. But secondly, just because somebody has done something bad doesn't discount everything else that they've done. Does that make sense? Jephthah's victory still stands, and more so, he is listed in Hebrews 11 in the what's sometimes known as the Hall of Faith passage. It talks about, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Moses did this. And Jephthah is listed in that list of the Hall of Faith, the, the people of faith that we should look up to. Isn't that crazy? That's mad, isn't it? What a redeeming God that he can use, even though Jephthah did some horrendous stuff, the victory that God brought through him is not forgotten. God chooses to use imperfect and broken people because in weakness, his strength is witnessed. And maybe some of us are feeling that's a good thing today because we feel pretty weak. But we say, God, if, you can, if you're strong enough, which we believe you are, would you use us? The good news is that we don't have to have it all sorted out in order for God to use us. We don't have to have all of our ducks in a row. We don't have to have everything in our lives sorted out for God to use us. Is that comforting for anyone in the room? Yeah, God can use any single one of us, regardless of how weak we might feel. God encourages us to fight against our instinct, to place our trust in people, and rather to put our trust in God. The unfailing, unchanging, always perfect and good God. So one more question for you today. Do you trust in people or in God? Where have you placed your trust? Who have you put your hope in? How might God be inviting you to put your trust back in him today? So as we begin to finish off today, I'd love just to recap the story of Jephthah one more time. And I'd love to encourage you to see if you could think, use your imagination to think about anyone else who might have a similar story in the Bible. Okay, does that make sense? So I'm going to read out a bit of a summary of Jephthah's life. And you can just have a think and think, is there anyone else in the Bible with a story just like this? So let's, uh, let, let's go with a, with a summary of Jephthah. The people of God have gone their own way chasing after other gods and have become brutally oppressed by their enemies of, the, of, of God's own people. Then a man is born in Israel who is rejected by his people because of circumstances around his conception. Then after the initial rejection, he's followed by many of society's cast-offs. Ultimately, he is seen by many as a leader who can overcome their enemies as long as they uh, swear full allegiance to him. And then through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he defeats the enemies facing his people. Does that remind you of anyone? Who are we thinking? Jesus, right? Sometimes with these, all of these judges that we've read about are prefiguring the greater judge who is to come. They're all saying, this judge was imperfect, but there is a perfect judge who is coming along. But here's a bit of a, yeah, you see the comparison slide. Both appeared after Israel had gone their own way both born in questionable circumstances, both rejected by their people. Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, but Jesus, unlike Jephthah, came as the serving and saving king, not sacrificing others, but self-sacrificially giving up his own life, taking the punishment that we deserved in order that we might be forgiven. And where Jephthah's victory uh, came with many failings 
and was only temporary, Jesus' victory is unlimited, everlasting, and cannot be overturned. Amen? Amen? All of these judges point towards the perfect judge who will come again to reign over his kingdom where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, but rather everlasting life. Before we close today, I want to briefly pull out one last lesson that we can learn from this story, and that is how Israel found themselves in the oppression to begin with. Right at the start of Jephthah's life, in Judges 10, we read that the Israelites were doing evil, serving the gods of the nations around them, and so God gave them up to their enemies. And so we just want to read one last passage of Scripture before we finish today. I'm reading from verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 9. It says, Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. The Israelites knew in the past when they turned away, they could just go to God and God would deliver them when they've cried out. And then once they delivered, they could then go back and live in their own way, go back to their other gods. And so they tried that thing again here. But they were treating God like a holy vending machine, right? They'd come and put the money in, they'd give their apology, and then they'd expect some deliverance out the bottom. But God didn't appreciate that. God sees through that empty apology and in effect says, I'm, I'm sick of being taken advantage of. Sometimes we can take advantage of God's grace. We can fall into this trap of doing whatever we want and then going back to God and saying, God, I'm sorry. And then going straight back to what we were doing in the first place because we know that God will forgive us anyway. Or sometimes we just do what feels easiest and most convenient for us without thinking about whether that's actually God's will for our lives. I know that there have been many times in my life when those things were true, when I've taken advantage of God's grace. We need to watch our hearts to make sure that we are repenting and turning from our wrong actions with humility and honesty. But at the same time, God's forgiveness doesn't depend on how sorry we are. It's not like if we're really sorry then God will forgive us. But if we're just a little bit sorry, then he probably won't. That's not what's happening here. I read this wonderful quote, which I think is great. So pay attention. I want to tweet if people are still on Twitter. Anyone still on Twitter? I'm not. Anyway. Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of God's compassion. Isn't that amazing? Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of God's compassion. I love that. God's heart for us is filled with compassion. He burns with love and desire for us. His heart breaks when sin separates us from him. And he has a deep longing for us all to live in relationship with him. And so his grace is as endless as the horizon and as deep as the ocean. And his heart for us is vast. That's why he hates sin so much, because he is jealous for our hearts and our affection and our attention and all of, the, all of our lives are flourishing. He's so jealous for that. And he sees this sin that takes so much of what he desires. 
And so he made a way for us to enter into his forgiveness. He himself went to die for us in the person of Jesus, taking the punishment that we deserved so that he could present us as holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So if you're feeling condemned today, come to Jesus. If you're feeling like your life is falling apart, come to Jesus. If you're aware of your past failings and think that they're too much to be forgiven, come to Jesus. If you've had enough of doing life your own way and you say, God, I want to do life your way, come to Jesus today, whether it be for the first time or the thousandth time or the millionth time, the invitation is there for you today. And so as we close, I want to pray a prayer. And you can pray this prayer with me if you'd like, in your heads or just out loud or silently in your hearts. And if you want to do that, if you want to come to Jesus today, I'd love for you just to repeat those words after me. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I come to you. I'm sorry for the mess I've made and my bad choices. I'm guilty. Thank you that you took my guilt for me by dying on the cross. I choose to accept your invitation of a new relationship with God. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live close to you. Please forgive me and help me to forgive myself and others. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time today, we would love to connect with you and just help you as you start your journey of coming towards Jesus. We've got some bags down here that you can take and there's like a a New Testament in there and some other fun stuff. So if you've done that for the first time, do come and chat to us and connect. But for all of us now, whether we've prayed that prayer before or not, um, we're going to make some time just to hear from God and to respond to what he might be saying. So um, should we stand if we're able? And we're just going to have a time of just waiting on the Holy Spirit and you might want to just say, as we're just waiting, you know, we do this thing. It's not just about everybody being quiet. It's about actually having some time to have a conversation with the living God. And so you might want to say, as we, well, I'll invite the Holy Spirit in a second, but you might just want to say in the quiet, God, what are you saying to me today? Not what are you saying to the person next to me or the person behind me, but right now, what are you saying to me? And how are you inviting me to respond? We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.